once again burning up up here. I don't know why it gets so warm up here on the farm. Uh, Titus is uh, the third of what we call the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. They were not written in that order. They were written uh, First Timothy, then Titus, uh, as far as chronologically, and then Second Timothy. But in our Bibles, they, for organization's sake, they kept First and Timothy, First and Second Timothy together. Um, <coughs> but the Second Timothy was written during Paul's second Roman imprisonment. Titus was written between the two, between his first imprisonment and his second imprisonment. Um, Titus is not spoken of in the book of Acts, but Paul refers to him 13 times in some of his other letters and considers him to be uh, a brother in Christ, uh, to be a fellow helper. He considers him to be his son in the faith, and so we believe uh, that uh, Paul was the one responsible for Titus coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And putting his faith in him was because of the messages and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Um, more than likely, Titus went with Paul on his third missionary journey. The reason we believe that is that three different times in that missionary journey, Paul sent him to the church at Corinth. And so it seems to be that, Tim, or that Titus was a, uh, a co-companion of Paul uh, during that third missionary journey that he was at Paul's disposal. Uh, and uh, was able to uh, be a help to him. He was also with Paul uh, during his second uh, Roman imprisonment for at least a while until Paul sent him again to uh, do some other errands for him. Um, when Paul writes this letter, Titus is currently at the time of the writing in uh, Crete. He's uh, there the ch dealing with some of the churches that Paul had established during his second missionary journey. And uh, Paul didn't have, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Paul didn't have a lot of time to spend there. He established the churches. But if you'll take a moment to look with me in uh, verse number four of chapter one, he writes uh, that he's writing to Titus. He says to Titus, my own son, after the common faith. So again, that's where we get the idea or belief that perhaps Paul was responsible for leading t uh, Titus to the place of trusting Christ as his savior. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And so uh, Paul leaves him in Crete uh, because he didn't have time himself to stay and establish the churches that he had started in areas of doctrine. Um, and he had not yet fully organized and set up the churches to have uh, proper leadership in the churches. And so he leaves Titus behind uh, to do those things. Those are the two issues that he has. He charges uh, Titus with and leaves him with. It gives him responsibility for to, um, uh, to continue to teach and uh, instruct in sound doctrine so that they can combat some of the false teachers that are uh, creeping in and to establish elders and put some leadership in place um, and so this is, this is Paul's kind of uh, giving uh, Titus, uh, some, some people call this a manual uh, of Christian behavior in the church or Christian organization in the church um, because it's a lot of line upon line and just, just one principle after another that Paul gives to Titus. And uh, basically you can break the book. It's only three chapters long. You can break it into two halves. 
<coughs> the first one is chapter 1, where he deals primarily with setting uh, uh, some elders in place and appointing some leadership in the church. Uh, then the second section of the book is chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, um, he focuses in on setting some things in order in the church. In other words, how certain groups should relate to each other, how they should behave. In chapter 2, he primarily deals with some groups of people. By the time he gets to chapter 3, he starts dealing with some individual issues, things that individually we should deal with. Um, so basically two halves of the book, uh, appointing elders, getting some leadership in place, and then instructing some groups of people in sound doctrine. Once again, the, the big push, the big emphasis that Paul puts on this is uh, faithfulness to sound doctrine. Uh, it seems like this is kind of a, a, an ongoing theme with both Timothy and Titus, uh, so much so that we could look at these and say that if these are what we call the pastoral epistles that Paul is instructing young preachers, here's what needs to be important and what needs to be of utmost um, uh, importance to you as far as defending and teaching and preaching. And he deals primarily with doctrine. I would go so far as to say that it must be the paramount thing in a church. If we're going to... Uh, if the purpose of the church is to help people mature spiritually, which that is the main purpose of the church, uh, to help them grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, <coughs> then sound doctrine is absolutely imperative. If doctrine is skewed, if we allow uh, false teachers to instruct and bring some ideas in that cause us to think incorrectly, um, then, then we're, we're not succeeding in maturing Christians. Um, we did a series this last three Wednesday nights on how to discern false teachers. And one of the things we found was that false teachers primarily prey on uh, spiritual immaturity, uh, babes in Christ, people who do not know their doctrine. And rightfully so, because if they knew their doctrine, they would understand and see very clearly that this is a false teacher. And so there's nothing new today that was not going on in Paul's day. It may be happening in different ways, but the technique and the, the process of it is still the same. All the way back in Paul's time, there were people that were trying to bring in doctrinal error. They were false teachers. And uh, Paul charges Titus and Timothy both, uh, fellas, this has got to be a major thing. It's got to be a major, uh, of major importance in the church that you establish sound doctrine, that you do not let it uh, waver, you defend it, you propagate it. And uh, not only uh, should we, and I think with it come, when it comes to sound doctrine, there's two things we need to consider, that not only do we need to defend it, but we also need to go out here and we need to teach it to others also. And I think sometimes we get in our minds that sound doctrine is important for us to learn, and it is. But if all we ever do is learn sound doctrine, and then we never go and teach someone else that sound doctrine then we're failing in half of the, half of the commission of that. Uh, the responsibility that we have to sound doctrine is not only that we know it ourselves, but that we commit the same to faithful men who are able to teach others also. So uh, I would encourage you, I would exhort our church, uh, as we study and we learn sound doctrine, don't just say, boy, I'm glad to have that nailed down in my life. Let's make sure we find someone else to invest that in and teach them sound doctrine as well. So these are things that Paul is uh, dealing with with Titus. And uh, he does this in a couple of ways. So he starts in chapter 1 with establishing uh, the appointing of some elders. It's also They also use the word bishop here. 
and they seem to use those two terms pretty much interchangeably. I know there are guys that will go back to Greek roots and things, and they'll say, okay, this one kind of deals with more of an administrative, and this one deals kind of more with preaching. Paul, and, uh, Paul deals primarily using them pretty much interchangeably. Uh, that this is the person that, that God sets uh, in order in the church as the one to lead the flock. Uh, and, and so just kind of keep that in, in mind. Uh, look, with, uh, look with us in verse number 6. And he's going to give a list of um, some important characteristics that ought to um, they ought to be apparent. They ought to be evident in a man's life who is going to be an elder, or uh, in this case, uh, we would call them in modern days we would call them pastors. Uh, the church, the Bible uses pastor. That uses elder. It uses bishop. Um, pretty much interchangeably in these areas. And there are some things that really ought to characterize us uh, that uh, are in there. And it's not to say that we're going to be 100% perfect in them in every way because preachers are sinners just like anyone else. But there ought to be a characteristic of their life that embodies these things. And he starts off in verse number 6. He says, If any be blameless... Now, it's interesting... He starts off with this to Titus about the blamelessness. In fact, he's going to reiterate it here uh, a little bit further in verse number 7. But he says, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, Sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So not only is sound doctrine important for the the um, uh, church as a whole and for the members of the church, but it is also important to refute the false teachers and that uh, it will help to convince those that would be uh, gainsayers. He says this, and he kind of contrasts the characteristics of an elder or a bishop with that of the false teachers. And so you just saw uh, the characteristics that ought to embody or ought to be characteristic of uh, a, a pastor. And then he goes on to say in verse number 10, and he shows the exact opposite of these false teachers. He says, "...for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers." especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they be sound in the faith. And it's interesting because that particular verse there, the Cretans were known for their dishonesty. They were known uh, uh, for their lying, if you will, their, their lack of integrity. In fact, it, there was a phrase, a commonly used phrase in Paul's time, that, uh, you have, yeah, that you are being like a Christian. And they would use that phrase, you're being like a Christian. And what they meant by that is, you're a liar. Uh, you're a dishonest. And so they, they actually had a phrase that identified people who lacked integrity uh, by referring to them as, you're, you're like a Christian. And so Paul says that is a faithful saying, but he says you need to rebuke these liars. You need to make sure that 
that you give them sound doctrine. You tell them the truth. And uh, he says, this witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. So, one of the ways that we're to treat false teachers is that we are to rebuke them, and not only rebuke them, but the Bible says we're to rebuke them sharply. Uh, we're to be bold in this thing. Uh, some people, uh, I, I've done in the last year or so, I've focused a little bit to try to educate our, our church and our people on uh, some of the groups that are out there and some of the things that are being taught. And I've had, a, not, not a lot, but I've had a few people that have come and kind of been uh, a little... little uh, uh, Critical, I guess, perhaps, of the fact that we've been so explicit and called out some names of some ministries and stuff. But the Bible tells us we're to, we're to rebuke them sharply. And I'm not out to, to be mean for the sake of being mean. And I'm not out to just be offensive for the sake of being offensive. But, folks, we've got to stand for truth. And we've got to stand for right. And when things are not right, we're to rebuke them. And we're to rebuke them sharply. And, again, we can do it with love. We can do it with with a, a smile on our face and not out to injure them for any uh, purpose of, of just trying to be an in, uh, of injury to them. But, but if what they're holding to is wrong, they need to be rebuked. And they need to be rebuked sharply. Now notice he says in verse, nine, uh, verse 14, "...not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience." Is defiled. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? That these men who have corrupt doctrine, that even their conscience is defiled, meaning they cannot trust their own consciences on the matters. I don't, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, uh, well, this is how I feel about it. Can I tell you this? We cannot trust our consciences when we are living uh, contrary to the doctrine of the Bible. The only conscience you and I can trust is the, the conscience that comes from reading Scripture, having the Holy Spirit bring that truth to light in our hearts, and then conviction taking place. That's the only conscience we can trust. It's not our, it's not our uh, thoughts. It's not our desires. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I know the Bible says it, but this is how I feel about it. Or, uh, and, and, and folks, it, trust me, today and the day we're living right now, this moment in history... It is rampant in our society. Churches that will get up and say, yes, I know the Bible calls this a sin, but it also says God is love and we ought to just all be accepting of things. Their conscience is defiled because their doctrine is defiled. We've got to understand these things. And then verse number 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. And so uh, he, he speaks here of uh, putting some leadership in the church and warns against putting leadership in the church that would be contrary to um, uh, those things that he said ought to characterize uh, a bishop or an elder. And he points out those that uh, are vain talkers and unruly and deceivers, those that reject the truth um, or don't hold to the truth uh, very strongly. So he, he tries to give that contrast and says, these are the kind of people you need to put in leadership. And these are the kind you should not. And he tells, tells us that all in chapter 1, pretty much. <coughs> there were a couple of things that he warned uh, Titus about with regards to 
the churches, the uh, churches themselves that were in Crete, uh, because the Cretans were prone to being tolerant. They they did not like confrontation, and because of their their laxity of of tolerating sound doctrine, and then also because of the um, the insistence and the the boldness of the false teachers, they were prone to be deceived by it. They were kind of laid back, and if false doctrine came in, they were like, okay, that's we'll just all get along. Let's not make a big deal about it. And that was their their mentality. And, and the false teachers kind of jumped on that, and because they were so laid back and apathetic and lax on the issues, they came in even with more boldness, and because of that, they had a lot of strength. So Paul gives Titus two things to combat that. He says, first of all, you must have sound doctrine taught to the people. Secondly, you have to have godly leadership. And these two things will combat the apathy and the strength of the false teachers. So when you get a church that's laid back and they're just allowing things to come into the church, and that's where we're at today, folks. I don't know if you realize this or not. It's, it's fine for us to study this historical thing, but, folks, we're in the day where this is happening again. History is repeating itself in our churches. This is happening today. Churches are apathetic, and they're tolerating, and they're being tolerant to the false teachers, and false teachers are emboldened by that. And Paul tells Titus, the way you combat that is with strong doctrine, firm doctrine, pure doctrine, and with strong godly leadership in the church. You've got to have both. And so this is the whole purpose why Paul leaves Titus uh, in Crete to go to these churches that Paul had established uh, and to help set these things in order and to elect godly leadership. Now, as we get to chapter 2, he speaks to Titus about... Uh, as a as a preacher, as a uh, shepherd of the flock, uh, how he is to uh, relate to what he is to be teaching. Let's put it that way. I guess would be the best thing. What what doctrine should he be teaching <clears throat> to particular groups of people? He starts off in chapter two. He says, "But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine." Things not only that are sound doctrine, but even things that support that sound doctrine. Things that become sound doctrine. Uh, and the word become, you know, it just, uh, we used that, that old English word years ago. Um, if, if somebody had an outfit that looked nice on them, someone would say, that's very becoming on you. Meaning it, it just seems to fit you. It seems to agree with you. It makes you look nice. It makes you look sharp. And so when it talks about this idea of speaking those things which become sound doctrine, not only the sound doctrine itself, but everything else that we speak about needs to point to and support that sound doctrine. And to make our speech that which becometh sound doctrine. Um, and so he, he says here, and, and so he establishes the importance of sound doctrine and immediately launches in verse number 2, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women, in other words, he says these are the things you ought to be teaching them. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded, 
in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. So he's to teach the aged men. He is to teach the aged women who are to teach the young ladies. And then he is also to teach the young men. So three groups so far, the aged men, the aged women, and the young men. You say, well, what about the young ladies? The aged women are given that responsibility to teach the young ladies. Now, notice what else he says here. He says, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having, what's this? Verse number 8, having what? No evil thing to save you. You cannot be condemned in your speech. You cannot have your doctrine refuted if you're holding to these sound words, this sound speech. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior in all things. Now, it is vitally important that we understand this truth. Paul tells Timothy... You need to teach character, biblical, scriptural, godly character to the aged men. You need to teach biblical, godly character to the aged women and make sure they know that they are to teach that same thing to the young women. You're to teach biblical, godly character to young men. You're to teach biblical, godly character to the servants. Why? Because if he teaches them in these things they will become defenders and propagators of sound doctrine. It's not enough for a preacher to get up and to spoon-feed sound doctrine to the church. He's also got to, as as we look at Scripture and we teach from Scripture, he's also got to do things that, that instruct and mature Christians. Because, again, the stronger and more mature that Christian is, the more they will be able to defend and have discernment of false doctrine, but defend sound doctrine and propagate sound doctrine. It all comes down to spiritual maturity. Spiritual immaturity, people are susceptible. They're wide open. They're blown about as children. They're they're, they're like children, blown about by every wind of doctrine because they are children spiritually. They are not mature. He talks about this of teaching these aged men and teaching these aged women and teaching the young men and teaching the servants And he's teaching them things on biblical, godly character. Why? Because that's what matures them in the spiritual life. And when they are mature, they are not susceptible to the false doctrine. They'll be able to discern it. They'll be able to see it. They'll be able to defend against it. And to keep doctrine pure. It's very important. And I think a lot of churches miss this. Even churches that are are focused on having sound doctrine, I think we fail in the area of taking Scripture and teaching people Scripture so that they can mature in their Christian life, so they can grow in their Christian life. Um, I, I know people that have been in churches. I've been in churches and sat through two or three preaching services when I've been visiting somewhere and left, and I felt like, boy, that was a smorgasbord. I feasted upon God's Word. It was so much I couldn't hardly take it all. But I have been in other churches where I walked out of there and I thought, I don't even know what the guy preached on. Why? Because there's an importance that is placed in some churches, and they understand this, of teaching the truth of God's Word in a way 
that the folks that are under the sound of it can become more spiritually mature. They're growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're feasting on God's Word. They're developing a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And this is vitally important because if that maturity is not dealt with, if we don't build people, if this book is not doing something in your hearts and growing you daily, you're susceptible to the false doctrine that comes around. And so he tells Titus, he says, you've got a responsibility. You need to get some godly leadership in these churches that will do this. And until then, you've got to be doing this. You've got to be teaching these things and building up people and and maturing them spiritually so that they can uh, be of use in defending doctrine. And uh, so he says all of this, uh, down to verse number 10, he kind of brings it all to a a summary. He says, "...not purloining, but showing uh, all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things." Why does he have to teach the aged men? So that they can adorn the doctrine of God in all things. Why does he teach the aged women? So they can adorn the doctrine of God in all things. Why do the aged women teach the younger women? Same reason. Why does he teach the young men? Why does he teach the servants? So that they can adorn the doctrine of God in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. Now, I've preached on this before. I'm not going to go through and preach this passage again. But it is interesting to me that he talks about the fact that salvation is by grace. Do you see that? Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, that grace, that grace that brought salvation to us, it also teaches us something. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, he's going to switch gears here. He's kind of prefacing what he's getting ready to do in chapter 3 as he transitions from groups of people to individually. How are we to behave and live in our churches? How are we as God's people to be? He says, looking for that blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Two things happen there. There's redemption, and there is, we will use the word here, sanctification. They are redeemed from all iniquity, and they are purified unto Himself as a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Now, let's take the context of what he just said here in these last few verses from 11, verse number 11 on. He just dealt with the importance of pure doctrine, sound doctrine. The importance of developing character and maturity, spiritual maturity, in the lives of the people so that they are firm, that they are not swayed in this area of doctrine, that they don't follow after the false doctrine. And then he gives two reasons why. First of all, because we've been redeemed. Now, that ought to be reason enough that we ought to hold the sound doctrine. Because of what God has done for us, we ought to do what He tells us we ought to do from Scripture. We ought to know His doctrine. 
We ought to study this book. There ought to be no, no Christian in this world should ever say, well, I don't know why I have to read my Bible. There ought to be a desire because we have been redeemed to, to follow after and to know and to study sound doctrine. But he gives another reason, not only because we have been redeemed, but because the Lord is going to return. Notice what he says here, looking, verse number 13, for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak, rebuke, and exhort, uh, exhort and rebuke with all authority, but no man despise thee. Why? Why, Titus? Why do you want them to be grounded in sound doctrine? Why do you want to instill in them a hunger and a thirst for doctrine? Because they've been redeemed and because the Lord's going to return. And we need to be holding forth sound doctrine when He comes. I don't know about you, but when the Lord's return happens, if I'm still living, I don't want to be embarrassed or ashamed. I would rather be doing all that I could to live the way He has asked me to live in this Scripture. To know His sound doctrine. So, He ties now good deeds and good works to that which was already done in us when Christ redeemed us. He says, because we are saved, God has separated unto us, or He has has purified unto Himself, He says in verse 14, a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now He says, put them in mind, Again, speaking of individuals, to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready for every good work. And so he's dealing here with externals. He's dealing here with works. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Now, this is not said to uh, tell us what a pastor ought to be. This is telling us what every believer ought to be, including pastors. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And then he puts in a word of warning, lest they misunderstand what he's saying. Because he's saying, God has redeemed you. He has set you apart for good works. And then he gives them a word of warning in case they think, well, the good works is part of the salvation. He says this, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His what grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, that these things, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which... Uh, have believed in God. So we're already talking about those that are already saved here. Might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Paul goes out of his way to make sure that they do not confuse good works as a requisite for salvation. But he goes just as far to say, seeing then that we have been saved, in verse number 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. 
These things are good and profitable unto men. So we do good works not to get saved, but because we are saved. Very important, folks. Very important. It will keep us from doctrinal error if we will study and know this doctrine. It will keep you from falling after... And folks, I don't mean this to be mean or incendiary or to cause people to have their feelings hurt. I do not mean that. I promise you this. But there are those that would teach contrary to Scripture that will seem and sound just like they are sound doctrinal teachers and preachers. But they are not. And the only... The only way that you'll know is if you know your doctrine from the Bible. The only way that you're going to be able to have that discernment is to know what the Bible has to say on this. This isn't the only place in Scripture. It is is run through and through Scripture that our salvation is not by works, not by works, not by works. It is by faith. It is by God's grace through faith alone. And that is it. And yet, there are those that will do all kinds of things to teach you that if you don't have good works, then you're not saved. It doesn't say you have to have those good works to be saved. It says that you should. It says that we ought to be careful to maintain good works because we're saved. But we don't have to have them to be saved. It tells us that we should not continue in sin so that grace may abound. But these are things that should be in a Christian's life, not things that are required in order for them to be saved. And so he sets these things in order. He gives some personal instruction to these folks that they should be careful to maintain good works. He talks about a man who is an heretic in verse number 10, after the first and second admonition, reject. If you show them from Scripture this is wrong... And they continue to hold to it. And you show them again in Scripture, this is wrong. And they continue to hold to it. (coughs) The Bible says, reject them. Knowing this, verse 11, that he that is such is subverted. And sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, uh, be diligent to come unto me in uh, Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And I want you to notice verse 14. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not... What's the next word here? So if we're saved and we do not have good works or good deeds, if we decide, I'm just not going to... I'm just going to live the way I've always lived. I'm going to take my salvation and just go to heaven one day. And I decide I'm not going to have good works. What does Paul say is the result of that? They have to have good works. They have to maintain good works in verse 14 in order that they be not what? Unfruitful. Not maintaining good works does not mean we lose our salvation. It means we're unfruitful. We're unfruitful. After all that God has done for us, after the grace that He has shown us, after the love that we should have in our hearts for Him for what He has done for us, why would any Christian, anyone that has trusted Christ as their Savior, 
say, I don't have any desire to be fruitful. I just want to, I just want to live my own life. Why would there not be such a desire to say, Lord, I want to be fruitful for You. I want to, I want to do something that pleases You, that, that causes joy to Your heart. He ends with a salutation. And so Paul is, is trying to help Titus accomplish some establishing of order, establishing of pure doctrine in the churches. And he tells him, here's how you go about doing it. You teach and you train these aged men. You teach and train these aged women. You teach and train young men. You teach and train the servants so that they can hold fast to sound doctrine. Put some, put some leadership, godly leadership in the church that can exhort and instruct them in these truths. The theme for the book is basically a manual for conduct in the church. Key verses are chapter 1, verse number 5. Let's take a moment to read that one. He says, For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And then also chapter 3 and verse number 8. <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 8, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Chapter 2 is the key chapter, if you want to know of a key chapter. Christ is shown in His redemptive work in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And we see Him quite clearly in that portion of Scripture. It's him that did he that did the redeeming work, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Alright. I hope that'll be a help to you. Uh, small book, a lot of meat, a lot of doctrine in there, a lot of teaching in there that is vital to us as Christians. And ought to be very helpful to us. And, you know, some of these smaller books, as far as size, are very powerful, very potent, have a lot of truth in them. And I hope that we don't just overlook them for the sake of the fact that they're kind of small, but that we'll do diligence when we read them, look for the sound doctrine in them, and uh, let's mature spiritually as we go day by day. Let's pray together. Father, bless the teaching, the preaching of your word. We pray that you'll use it in our hearts and our lives. And, Father, may we become more of what we should be each and every day. May we grow in that grace that you've given and that you've